Hey there, welcome to the Pine Island Experience Podcast. I'm Joanna Anderson with my husband, Trigby. Each of our episodes will be conversations with fellow Pine Islanders. The goal of our podcast is to share with you our experiences, what we have found to be fun, and what makes the Pine Island Experience so unique. You know, that was the evolution of the company, which, which was everything, every facet from the accounting to the graphics to the every, every sales, everything, distribution, every facet, I kind of said, this is how they do it. I'm going to do it different. And because what I saw in that type of business is there wasn't a lot of value for the client. It was all about the company profiting. And I always wondered the, their philosophy in, in the, the print days when it was big and, you know, newspapers and Chicago Times and all. In the print days, their philosophy was to spend 95% of your efforts into selling advertising because that's where all the money was. And 5% of the content value. They didn't really care about that. It was a separate division. And I thought, what if you reverse the numbers? What would happen if you actually put so much work into the content value, made people want this product, then the advertisers, they'll come to you. And everybody just laughed at me and said, yeah, good luck with that one. You know, you'd be the only one in the world that made that happen. And I thought, well, there's, don't tell me I can't do it. So out of curiosity, I just went in and just hammered the, the content and the value of what it would take for the person to want to pick it up every month. And then I started putting them in places that I wanted to buy the ad, but instead of talking to them about ads, I'd put a stand in and they would watch how many of mine flew off the shelf and the other ones just sat around. So they ended up calling me. And I've had, a, I've had almost 100% client retention for the last 20 years. I've never had sales staff, never knocked on doors. You just heard Jim Griffiths, entrepreneur, owner, writer, and publisher of the monthly Nautical Mile magazine and the quarterly destination Pine Island Visitor and New Resident Information Guide. In this episode, Jim shares his adventuresome life across the country and introduces his book, Don't Tell Me I Can't Do It, where he explains what it's like to be an entrepreneur. And now, here is Jim Griffiths. So, Jim, Jim Griffiths, thank you very much for coming. Good morning. Thank you for having me. We were so we are very excited that you're here. Um, I'm I'm thankful that you sent your book because it has everything going for it. I mean, I I love biographies, autobiographies, true true things. It has all that. I love self help. It has that. It has instructions on how to be better in business. It fascinating. It was a very good read and I appreciate it. Plus, it helped with my research for questions. For oh, you. thank you. But yeah, it, that was actually my wife's idea. She, every time I'd, we'd have a conversation, oh yeah, I did that or I was in Dutch Harbor <laughs> or I do this. And she said, you never told me that. I forgot half the stuff I did because I just keep going to the next thing. And she says, she kept saying, you should write a book about all your stuff. And I thought, well, who'd want to read that? And mm -hmm. after I started writing it, I realized I wanted to read it. This was cool stuff I did. I forgot half the things I'd done. So I, I, I got to credit my wife for or the idea anyway, and then mm -hmm. you know, a, a year's worth of writing. It took a while to put it all together and have it edited and all, but thank you. That's a great compliment. It, 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 it was brilliant. I love it. We, uh, what we always do, and uh, we have to say the title so people know what it is. Don't tell me I can't do it. Correct. That's, very catchy. That's very motivating. If someone ever told me I couldn't do something, and sometimes I got in trouble doing it anyway, but I, I just had to find out if it could be done or not because I just can't believe it. It's, it's kind of a Jim Kirk philosophy off of Star Trek. You mm -hmm. know, he never believed in a, a no win. You know, there, there's a way to make this happen. Sometimes maybe you don't want it to happen, but there's always a way. Yeah. Good. Well, so what we always do in the beginning, we start um, with your background. Mm -hmm. You have an amazing background. See, I, I, see I'm spoiled now because I know oh. all about you now, what you've done from your book. Well, let's I probably not go into a the stocking territory. <laughs> no, no, no. Not yeah. But you started, You, we. if you could just tell us like this in a summary, and then we'll get into the details of what yeah. you've been doing and, and where you're from and uh, where you grew up, where you moved to, all the different jobs, those fascinating jobs that you had, if you yeah, could share I, that with everybody. I thought they were a burden at the time, and now I look back and think those were the good years. I had a really good time <laughs> doing those things that I did, but. I started in Long Island, New York, actually. When I was five years old, my parents moved to Southwest Florida here to Cape Coral. And uh, my dad got a job with the Cape Coral Police Department. I think there were only seven officers at the time in the early 70s. And then he ended up getting an offer from St. Pete Clearwater Airport to be the chief of security on the airport. So we moved to the St. Pete Clearwater area for, I think it was only about a year or so. I was probably 10. And then at that time, Governor Rubin Askew had begged the president 
to for help with the cocaine and drug trafficking in the Keys. And what they came up with was a plan to find 50 cowboy cops that were just, you know, rule breakers, but borderline, you're allowed to be a police officer, like Dirty Harry kind of things. And they wanted to put him in the Keys. They put one every two miles, gave him a boat, put him on the water and said, you know, we got to get this under control. They, when they were smuggling bales of wine on the docks in Key West, it was more like local revenue. But when the cocaine started getting involved, people were getting killed. They had to control it. So my dad was one of the guys picked. So when I was about 10, we moved to Key Largo. He was out there every day getting shot at and, you know, doing all the cocaine oh, cowboy oh, stuff. He was actually in the cocaine cowboy TV documentary. It was about halfway through. I was washing dishes and I got this thing playing in the background and I heard the voice. And I said, that's my dad. My, my wife says, that's what? <laughs> that's my dad on TV. Because I hadn't seen him in probably 20 years. I don't really know where he ended up getting off to. And so I, I rewound it and watched it. And that was interesting. That was actually a bust up in Homestead. It was the largest cocaine bus in U.S. history at the time. And uh, he got, you know, lots of publicity for that. He was in Time Magazine. And a month later, that someone in San Diego got a bigger bus. But he got that, you know, for a while. But anyway, in the Keys... You know, I, I was a bit of a troublemaker. I ended up running away, dropping out of school. I was in trouble across the board. I had a, a fantasy about the boating lifestyle, so I ended up joining the Coast Guard. I lasted about two weeks there in Cape May. Apparently, I wasn't ready for discipline at the time. <laughs> and so I ended up back in the Keys, and I was illegally drinking at Holiday Isle, and they had cable television, which cable was in the Keys, mm -hmm. but it wasn't in the houses. It was just in the big restaurants okay. and resorts and stuff at that time. And MTV popped up on one of the screens, and I saw Bon Jovi. And there was the hair flying, and there was the girls throwing their panties on the stage. There's lights flashing. I said, oh, I want to do that. So I took off to California, and I grew my hair down to my waist, played in a rock band. And this was something I wrote about recently where how do you know when you're doing the right thing or, you know, how do you really know that this is where I'm supposed to be? I had the opportunity with the band I was playing in to play in, in a local club that was over 1,000 people that night. There was a local rock band that was well-known playing as the headliner. They just needed some lesser band to make the headliner look good, so they picked us. And... After playing in front of a thousand people, I thought I was going to leave that stage feeling as high as you could feel without a drug. And I didn't feel it. So then I realized, you know what, this, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. I just kind of woke up from that little tornado I went through. And I ended up up in Dutch Harbor, Alaska. I commercial fish for a couple of seasons for money to come back here. So that's the, um, is that like the King Crab place? That's where the King Crab Discovery, boats go it's, out it's of. The similar thing? Yeah, okay. that was, uh, the boats were there. And okay. I, you know, I saw the boats and all that were at the same docks, but. I couldn't do that because you have to fish up there for quite some time to prove yourself ah. because it's it's so mentally and, and physically, physically tough to do yeah. what they okay. do because you can't be on that boat and have any kind of problems. Mm -hmm. And I didn't fish up there long enough to be qualified to okay. do something like that. So I did make good money, and I was able to come back here. And I went to work at a car wash in Cape Coral, lived at the Del Prado Inn for 100 bucks a week, and I was basically, you know, really tough struggling. But one thing led to another, and I started my own business, Waxing and Cleaning Boats in Cape Coral, which led to the publication. That was 20 years ago. Uh, every, everything at the time seemed like, oh, I've got it so bad, and this is tough. But the mentorship and the guidance and the people that reached out to me along the way and helped me do things, I look back and think, what a blessing. I mean, everything I've done, I should be living under a bridge in the Keys right now, being a bum somewhere. But it, it was other people that reached out to me and saw something I didn't see in myself and helped me along the way. So that that led to everything else I've done, and now I'm just kind of wondering what, what do you want to do next? What's going to be the next fun, exciting thing you're going to do? Because there's still plenty of time. I do think it's interesting because um, I think for many people, it's easy to kind of forget the value of those, of any experience, even if you didn't have multiple careers, if you want to call yours multiple careers or right. something like that. But, you know, as, as time goes on, something comes up and you're able to make a decision. You know, whether it was waking up to say, this is not what I want to do or how to do something better or different, or I think I'd rather do this and that. You're able to make that, though, because it's a sum of those experiences. Right. So you look at these things up front. We were uh, joking with the last guest. You know, my first job was lifeguarding for 50 cents an hour. Uh, People say lifeguard 50 cents an hour. I was living the dream. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it pretty cool, actually. I, I, doing, I was outside <laughs> with a bunch of kids. There's yeah. always music playing in the background. You know, I wasn't doing heavy labor like, you know, a lot of kids like worked road construction and those kind. Well, they made mm -hmm. a hell of a lot more money, but they were killing themselves. And I'm sitting in a chair watching yeah. people swim. <laughs> Eventually, they spent their money and they have no experience other than heavy labor. You've got all that experience to look but, back But on. you add those things up over time. And I do honestly believe that's the foundation now of some of the things that we're all doing is, yeah, you, but if you figure out how to apply it, you keep the good. 
right. and improve on those. And you throw away, okay, that was pretty stupid. I should have never done that. And you, you say, okay, oh, I got a few I, of those. I, well, my lesson is I won't do it again. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've got a few of those. I kind of blocked them out and forgot about them. <laughs> that was pretty stupid. Shouldn't have done that one, you know. <laughs> but they all lead to something else. Yeah. So it's a lot of fun. I, there's a lot of days I regret not joining the Army and doing the 30 years and getting the pension and following the routine. But then mm-hmm. there's other days you think for the trade off. What a life. I mean, I've, I've just seen and done so much stuff. I'm so grateful that, that everything worked out the way it is, and I'm still able to live and talk about it. <laughs> but it sounds like, from what I read, you had this um, great work ethic, I mean, and, and you had mentors. But mostly it was yep. you like to work hard and do well, so you were being promoted all the time or, or doing well in business. You know, when I was younger, I, did, I don't think I knew any better other than to do that, because it, it, I think it started at the boat rentals at Pennycamp Park. I was 11 or 12 years old, and they let me work on the docks. And it was exciting for a kid to be able to drive the boats to the gas dock back and forth and you know, do all this stuff. And I was the one that went down and showed the people how to boat, operate the boat and where the anchor is and showed them the propeller, make sure it's all good and how to navigate and stuff. And, and that young, being on the water in the Keys, that was just fascinating. I mean, I was the dock guy at Pennycamp Park boat rentals, and it was just such a cool job. But my boss was incredibly strict. He, you know, you're on time, you're going to work. These are your breaks. This is what you do. Those anchor lines better be in a circle shape. And he was very strict and he he taught me. And, you know, this is an interesting piece here from what we were just talking about. He came in on a Friday, which he always did with paychecks. And he hands me an envelope and he says, you're, you don't discuss this with the other employees. He walks away. I thought, all right, did I just get fired? I mean, I didn't know what was going on here. <laughs> and I opened this envelope and it was a couple hundred bucks and a check. And I found out I just got a pay raise up to like 260 an hour or whatever the wage was at the time, big increase. And it, it, excuse me, it was more than what the mechanics were making at the time that worked for him in the shop. And I I had to ask why, because I want to know what I'm doing right and what I could do better or whatever. And he said, let me explain something to you and try and understand the best you can. You're doing the work of two people. So you're saving me from hiring a whole nother person and everything that goes along with it. So it's worth me paying you this because I'm actually still saving money by giving you this much. Mm-hmm. And he was explaining how how work ethics and hard work and showing up and all that ended up paying off on a job if you were willing to do it. And maybe that doesn't work at every job. But I learned at the age of 11 or 12 years old that the harder you work, the more you get. That was what it came out to be. And then I also learned if you listen to the boss, he probably knows more than you do. So close mm-hmm. your mouth and listen because... Maybe some of it doesn't make sense, but if you're paying attention, I call it being a sponge, absorbing that information, then maybe they can teach you something. So I look back at everything I've ever done or gotten or achieved and credit mentors of what they taught me at such a young age when my mind was still developing and, you know, and trying to be a troublemaker at the same time. But I still, I knew that these guys are where I want to be. You better listen to what they're saying. There must be something about 11 and 12 year olds because Reed Freeman started working, um, because uh, his dad bought SOBs at Fort Myers Beach. He started working for him at 11. And, yeah, and then started, I knew that family pretty well. And then um, uh, Tommy started at 11, I believe, w- working. Mm. And um, we talked about Sophie yeah. uh, at tw- 11. There's something magical about being 11. Yeah, that, that age group seems to be at a, at a developing stage of when things start to sink in, if 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 you want to work or not, really. Yeah. And I, I think Sophie's actually kind of teaching her parents some work ethics. So, so it's going back and forth. And everyone in that family is is just incredibly, you know, oriented to, to priorities and working. I'm so, Sophie is just so cool. She's so cool to be around. Yeah. Makes you want to be a kid again and grow up just like that. So we go back to Pentacamp for a second. Oh, yeah. And so you're a young kid, 11, 12, whatever the age was. And I would guess that you probably got some experienced boaters who were simply on vacation and wanted to go out. Right. Um, and then you probably got a slew of people that weren't experienced boaters. And I'm just interested how that worked out because having boated in the Keys, you've got to be on top of your game because you can be in good water and immediate, and very quickly be in bad water. Right. Um, so you, plus the fact, many adults don't like to listen to children, uh, per se, on giving instructions. Yeah. So here you are, this right. <laughs> barely a teenager instructing people I assume of all ages of all experience levels kind of stuff like that and that had to be an interesting environment I mean I think probably as you began to talk people understood that you knew what you were talking about right, the routine of showing them the boat or whatever but that that had to be there probably there's probably some really interesting challenges or story because I know most dock masters could talk to you for a month and still have a thousand stories left right about what's happening crazy on goes docks. on what people yeah. do with boats and what was that like being such a 
young kid, because I'm sure you were renting to at least had to be what, 18 or 21 and over. So well, most of them were a lot older than that. Yeah, I, I was you know, going to say. Families so on vacation were more like You're a fraction 30s. of the age of the renter, oh, yeah. and you're in yeah. charge. Right, of the docks anyway. Wow. It was, uh, I, I don't remember it being a problem. I remember okay. trying, I was such a little skinny kid, and I couldn't lift the 85 horse Meyer Johnson out of the water by hand because we didn't have power trim. <laughs> And I had to lift the motor out to show them the propeller, oh, okay. to show them that it's good now. It better come back good or you're going to be billed for it. You have to look at it and verify that you did see this before. And that was my challenge. I couldn't lift the motor. So often they would get on the boat and they'd help me pull the motor back <laughs> oh, so they could see their own propeller. And then when they came back in, I'd check it again. But, I, I you know, I don't remember anyone not listening or not taking me seriously. Okay. And the big thing then is, yes, you're right about the keys. It's not like, you know, I mean, here we have oyster bars and stuff, but we also now have GPSs showing you where they're yeah. at. But down there, you could see a patch reef coming up. And I just tell them, when you see that, just kind of navigate around it. But there was so much boat traffic in Key Largo, especially Pennycamp at that time, mm -hmm. that I did tell them, just get behind another boat if you're ever in doubt. Because they'll, they'll hit bottom there first. You, yeah. you know, <laughs> if there's something to hit, they'll, they'll do it first. And don't get too close, because if they stop, you won't know it. You know, the basics like that. But it was very rare that we had a problem with people that have never okay. been behind the wheel of a boat. And they went all the way out to Molasses Reef and back. And they made it back. It was maybe once every two or three months we'd have to go out at night or, you know, after hours looking for someone. And it just turned out that they were still out sightseeing and they just came in late. Oh, okay. It was, right. I don't think we ever actually lost a boat or had a, a any kind of a medical issue That's or a problem. Amazing. Everybody made it yeah. back. But I, I don't think it was my skills of teaching them anything, of course. I think it was because there was so much boating they could just follow another boat. Mm -hmm. And we often did get phone calls from, or it wasn't phone, it was, you know, VHF radio at the mm -hmm. time of saying, hey, you guys got rental boat number six, he's over here, just wanted to let you guys know, and he's all right, you know, we'd have to go chase him down and go, which was a great call to get for me, because I got to hop in a rental boat and go out there and find him, and I'm, you know, 12, 13, 14 years Free old. boat ride. That was so cool. Yeah. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. It was. Ex I was waiting for those calls, because I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> now, not to bring up something that, but uh, you did, but, so... The whole Coast Guard experience, did you just realize two weeks in? But I have a perception, it may be wrong, that like you've signed those papers, you're kind of like in there. So did they ask you to leave? Did you, or was it like a trial period kind of thing? And you said, No, it, I officially signed up. I, I had um, signed up out of Miami and got on the plane and they sent me to boot camp to Cape May, New Jersey. And about two weeks later, one of the guys at the boot camp just pulled me aside and they said, you know, you you obviously do not belong here. He said, what's okay. going on? So we talked about life and family and all this stuff. I, and he said, you know, we're going to put you on a plane. And we're going to send you back to Florida. And, he, and they said, it's an open invitation. If a year later you decide, yes, you know, this, I got some things worked out and you want to come back or something. And it, it wasn't on the books. It was, I don't know what the discharge was called. It, it wasn't dishonorable. It was just kind of blank. I did get, is that the BD-214? Or what, yeah, something like and that. And it was all blacked out, so okay. I couldn't even see what it said. So I don't well, know how the Well, you were only 17. Was. Yeah, I was you. 17 when I signed up. I think I was yeah. 18 when I left. But and, how fascinating that, and, and maybe I've watched too many movies, and, I, you know, but the fact that somebody realized that, and maybe one of your first early mentoring experiences with a person said, you're in the wrong job, son. You know, and, well, we weren't at war. There wasn't a serious crime. A lot of people wanted to be in the Coast Guard. It, it might have been different if there was other circumstances where they right. said, no, you signed up. We're going to put you in a different class here and get you into shape. Then yes. we're going to put you into boot camp or okay. something. So I, I think the circumstances of the time were probably yeah. there where they said, okay. you know, you don't want us. We don't want you. Let's just forget this ever happened. And, you know, sometimes I really wish that would have stuck. I wish I could have stuck it out because... It would have been fun to, you know, get transferred to the Keys or something. But it, later I had found out they're just going to ship you somewhere and make you paint boats or something because right. of, you know, your background and all. So maybe it was better it didn't work out. Things always have a funny way of working out the way Invariably, they're supposed to. Yeah. They yeah. seem terrible at the time. Right. Or devastating. When you're in the middle situation. of it, it's horrible. But then when you get out, you think, yeah, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> and you end up okay. Yeah, she had a situation where the institution she's working for got bought out by a much larger corporation and about... I don't know, four, five, six months in, they decided to let most of the management go, which not uncommon in a, a buyout kind of situation. At the time, we're like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And we said, we've always wanted to be in warmer Florida. Let's just find what something an forward and move. So, yep. yeah, something that at face value, when the first phone call came in, in fact, we still, I mean, it's enough. I said, we were at a Mexican restaurant. I, could, I don't know. You know, it's one of those things. I There's a lot of stuff I've forgotten, but I know we were at a Mexican restaurant. She took the phone call and she goes, well, I've just been let go. Oh, you know, and well, what a call to get. 
Well, we were on vacation. Yes. So I, I was lucky because um, what had happened, there were uh, it was a huge company, and we were bringing all these hospitals live on a new system. And there were, we each had a bunch of hospitals as, as directors, and we brought them all live. And then the company decided, oh, well, we're going to bring in a consultant now to run it. And so my boss called me. I'm on vacation. We're, we were in Outer, South, Banks. Outer Banks. My boss calls me. Bigger questions. Why we're at a Mexican restaurant in the Outer Banks, but never. New no, topic. but my boss calls <laughs> me. everywhere. And he goes, Joanna, we were like, oh, this is my boss is being like, oh, and I'm like, what? I just got a letter of coming. He says, no, no, no. They just, they're going to outsource to a consulting company. Did you think it, it was a mistake or something at first? When did you first I? heard it? No, like no, because he, my boss was fantastic. He would have never. Very straight. Oh, okay. Yes. And, okay. and he was taking it well. And um, hmm. I was glad I wasn't there because the my peers, there was about seven of us, I think. Um, one started crying. I mean, it, it, oh. it's just devastating. Right. It never happened to me um, before. And as a matter of fact, when we came back from vacation, the first day I called uh, his secretary and I said, yeah, I'm calling in sick. You know, I was, oh, oh, you know, I mean, she came and got me. But <laughs> you know what? We just turned it around. I wanted to be in Florida. Perfect and so it was my turn to find a job. We took turns our whole lives moving back, moving different places mm -hmm. for his job or my job. And actually, it's the best thing that could have happened. Uh, I've told that to people. When you've been let go, you're going to, it doesn't sound like it now. But you're going to say, well, why did I even stay at that place that long? Uh, I'm so much better off. It happens all the time. a movie called Up in the Air that George Clooney stars in. Mm -hmm. And he's a, it was probably dated dated. Oh, was he the ago. professional person that he went He let into... him go. Yeah. And there's 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 things in there between the lines if you're paying attention to the, the script of how this is an opportunity. Mm -hmm. That you've been at this company 12 years. You're not miserable, but you're not happy. And, right. you know, this is a routine you've developed. And now you have no choice but to go do something else. But what was your dream? Maybe it's time to go follow that or get back on track of what you really want. And and he, he found a way to turn it around. And his job was to ease it for them so they mm -hmm. wouldn't commit suicide or, you know, right, do something right. crazy. But at the same time, if you're listening, you realize these things happen and it's a massive opportunity. You just don't know it, like we said before, because when you're in the middle of it, all you see is the mess. You can't, yes, you can't exactly. see that opportunity. Great idea. Well, if we swing back to you now, so you've done all these things, working early, different cities, different states, different kinds of things. Where does publishing start to kind of come into your vision or your dreams? Well, it it was not intended to be a business or any kind of an income. It was, uh, I, I had a, when I got back here and I was, you know, living and working at a car wash, I didn't really have any survival. I made just enough money for peanut butter and jelly. And I would work so hard at that car wash to make tips because the tips were how I got more groceries. And that was wow. all I could really do. But because I was working so hard, I got promoted into the detail shop. And I thought, well, that worked out pretty good. <laughs> so I learned a little bit about detailing, made some better money, got better mm -hmm. tips. And, um, you know, I still had some money left over from Dutch Harbor days, but I know if you spend your money, you don't have it anymore. So right. I knew you had to get your income back up again. So on my days off, I'd walk around neighborhoods with a bucket and a rag and some soap and offer to wash cars for 10 bucks. If I did three or four cars a day, that's 40 bucks. Yeah. And I mean, that's a third of my income, just doing it on my one day off. And then Clean Up by Willie Lopez was a company that drove around trucks and cleaned up construction sites. And it was contracted for all of his builders and his friends. And he asked me to go over to his shop on Sundays and just give the trucks a quick clean. He doesn't want them detailed. They just look horrible from driving around construction sites. So he gave me 20 bucks a truck and it was always five trucks. So I made a hundred bucks on Sunday outside of my work. That's almost my paycheck. So <laughs> one thing led to another. And then I, next thing you know, I bought a bottle of wax and said, well, can I wash and wax your car? I'll charge you 25 bucks. So now I started this company called the wax man where I drove around Cape Coral, had a brand new truck. And this was a few months later. And I had, I was the only guy in town doing it. And the windshield of the truck said the wax man. And I got so busy and so booked. I had to take my phone number off the truck. I just could not take any more work. And wow. I, as bad as it was, I worked seven days around storms. Whenever it rained, I could get a day off or I would use that day to go wash a boat that I was going to wax the next day or something to try mm -hmm. and utilize the time. But I was so booked and so busy 
And, and now I'm, you know, making tons of money driving around waxing boats. And every time I would do a boat, the guy across the canal, hey, give me your card before you leave. I'd drive around the canal again. So now I got the whole canal, every boat on the canal. And I spent a week on that canal. You must have been so and, tired. Uh, well, I was, you know, in my late 20s, I guess, 30 years old and, you know, physically able to do that. I, I you know, I ate whatever I wanted and I drank a 12 pack of Mountain Dew a day. I mean, that was my routine. And <laughs> And, you know, most of my evenings were spent washing all the towels to prep the truck for the next day. And it was it was fun. I mean, I this was the first time I had a personal brand and a name. I was the wax man. And people still call me that. You know, I'll go into Cape Coral and Annie's restaurant or something. You're wax man. Who's that? <laughs> it was Elmer Tabor's in there having coffee or something. But where, where you're on your question, I uh, every boat that I waxed, they would always ask me who fixes propellers or canvas or where can I do this or that. So I made a list that I kept in my glove box that I would photocopy of all the businesses I knew in the marine industry and, you know, tell them Waxman sent you. That turned into them referring me business. So it was a nice little network. Wow, okay. And I would just photocopy it, leave copies in. So it was kind of like Jim's list before Angie's list or Craig's list. And then somebody called me from a plastics manufacturing company that said, I'm doing fire trucks and water tanks and stuff. I think I could get into the marine industry could I pay you to put my name and number on that brochure you're passing around to boaters? And I thought, well, there's an idea. I'm charging them <laughs> 20 bucks. It pays for my photocopies, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. So the next thing you know, I'm, I'm in the publishing business. And I started a small newspaper, Gator Press, who I'm still working with today in Cape Coral. He owned a print shop, so he taught me printing and how ink works and stuff. Mm -hmm. A year later, I still didn't know what a pixel was. I mean, I'm, I'm figuring <laughs> this out as I go. I coordinated with a company in London who was a software company, and I actually helped co-write some of their software that they did for graphics because I was the junior that knew nothing, and that's what they were looking for. Okay. Because they wanted input from people that are real simple. And I said, oh, you're not going to get any simpler than me. You know? <laughs> so I helped them write you know, how, how this text box would work or how that would work. So I came up with this cool software that they're out of business now, but it still works with Windows. So I still get to use the same software. It's lightning fast compared to any publishing system. I do the whole paper myself in a couple hours every month. Excellent. So it's just, it was a, you know, stuff like that helped make the business a little bit better. When the recession of 06 hit was about my first month of profit where I was thinking about not waxing anymore and just doing publishing. And then I saw the recession hit and I figured, well, I'm gone. I'm going to be the first one out because I'm the only one that doesn't have deep pockets and a background and newspaper background and all that. It turned out the opposite happened. And, and this again goes back to having mentors as a kid. I learned that you don't hide from, you know, the, the economic winds, you know, when something happens, you lean into it and you work even harder. Now is when you bury your vacations and your hobbies and stuff and you focus on your business. When you needed it or wanted it, it was there. So now it's the business's turn. It needs you. So I worked twice as hard and I watched other publications. I probably had a dozen that were competitors. And I watched them cutting corners and trimming this and, you know, cutting word counts and trimming pages and less of this and less of that. And I thought, well, I'm going to do what Walt Disney does. You do the opposite of other people and usually it'll work out. So I, I added pages, I added content, added writers, added distribution, ran the press bill up and worked overtime to, you know, cover that cost. And I came out on top and everyone else is gone, you know? So it was a real throw of the dice because I, I still had no clue. Okay, is this going to work? You know, I didn't know what else to do. I know you don't sit and wait and hide. You know, you find a way to throw the dice on something. If it didn't work, no one would have known it. No one would have remembered it. We probably would have never met, but it did work. So it was another example of where, you know, you you don't hide from the work, mm -hmm. you know, don't, it's an opportunity. It led to being the only one standing now that still does what I do. Did that first company ever share with you how they discovered you? I mean, somebody gave them the intelligence, or I, the info, intel to say, yeah. hey, there's this kid out there. No, that was on the phone. They had a phone line where you could call to talk about how do, how do you do this? And they would work with you on the screen or even do a dual screen where they could show you how to do it. Oh, that cool. was the okay. kind of service they had because they were trying to build their software business. And so they recognized me as, hey, this guy sure does write in a lot. And they contacted me. And I thought they were calling to say, we're cutting you off. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you, you call complaint. every day with problems and you don't know how to do this or that. We, we can't do this anymore. You're costing us a fortune, you know, in, in service. But it was the opposite. They wanted me to work cool. with them. And then that first company that called to say, can we pay you to be on the flyer? Right. Um, then did you start to reach out to, uh, you said like, I'm, paraphrasing you know like the light bulb went on i'll charge him 20 bucks or whatever he said yeah. but did you then start to say hey maybe i should reach out to people or did word that you know people I, want I to be that. on your sheet or how did that grow you, for you? you know that was the evolution of the company which which was everything every facet from the accounting to the graphics to the every every sales everything distribution every facet i kind of said this is how they do it i'm going to do it different okay 
And because what I saw in that type of business is there wasn't a lot of value for the client. It was all about the company profiting. And I always wondered that their philosophy in, in the, the print days when it was big and, you know, newspapers and Chicago Times and all, in the print days, their philosophy was to spend 95% of your efforts into selling advertising because that's where all the money was. And 5% of the content value, they didn't really care about that. It was a separate division. And I thought, what if you reverse the numbers? What would happen if you actually put so much work into the content value, made people want this product, then the advertisers, they'll come to you. And everybody just laughed at me and said, yeah, good luck with that one. You know, you'd be the only one in the world that made that happen. And I thought, well, there's, don't tell me I can't do it. Yes. So out of curiosity, I just went in and just hammered the, the content and the value of what it would take for the person to want to pick it up every month. And then I started putting him in places that I wanted to buy the ad, but instead of talking to them about ads, I'd put a stand in and they would watch how many of mine flew off the shelf and the other ones just sat around. So they ended up calling me. Excellent. And I've had, a, yeah. I've had almost 100% client retention for the last 20 years. Wow. I've never had sales staff, never knocked on doors. It's interesting because basically you're, you were all around and on top of um, people ask one simple question. What's in it for me? And, and we and all do yeah, it in our personal lives and we do it in our, yeah, it's, right. it's extremely natural. But to your point, the people on the 95.5 you were talking about, they're forgetting that part. They're looking at the bottom line revenue, not right. what's driving the bottom line revenue. Right. What's, what's causing this to happen? Yeah. And if you can cause people to want to go looking for it, on a consistent basis and build a fan club, so to speak. So you own proof statement because you had a stand and the magazines or the publication went flying off the shelf and they then saw They that. saw that with their own eyes. They yeah. didn't need a salesperson to tell yeah. them. I tease about how Publix doesn't come to your house and tell you you got to buy ketchup. You just do it on your own. <laughs> and I always wondered, what if you created a product people actually wanted? Then you don't have to have a salesperson go out there and try to talk them into it. That's fascinating. And, and I've, I've had competitors, they, there was contracts with advertising. If you sign up for a year, we'll give you you know, this price and this kind of a deal. And I always thought, why do you need a, to lock them in for a year? Because wouldn't they just naturally stay if the product was any good? I mean, I keep shopping at the same stores if it's a good value and, I'm, you know, it's service and all. Right. So I wondered, why do you have to keep selling it? What happened to the guy that was there yesterday? Why did he quit? Where did he go? And how, how come they're not there anymore? And why is the retention so right. low? And what I found out on contracts is retention is almost zero. At the end of that long-term commitment, right. they don't come back. They move on to something else. And my retention was 100%. So I'm thinking I have no contracts. And you don't have so, a sales team, right? Well, uh, no. And that to me, that just runs up your overhead. And I've, I'm sure I've lost a lot of money because of it. If I had someone out there hammering doors and knocking and selling stuff and piling it up. But then you have a publication so full of ads, there's no content. So who wants, who wants to look through that? That's what a phone book was. And it was valuable, but that's not what I do. You have a lot of good content. A lot. You have your, your writers. That, the writers have so much color and flavor. Yes. You know, there's from from 12 year old, you know, writers about reptiles to a physical fitness a woman in Venice writes about mental health and physical fitness type stuff. So this flavor and it's things it's more about growing old in Southwest Florida, not just fishing. It's about our coastal lifestyle. And it's merged from just fishing and boating into a little bit more of what everybody and history. I saw yeah, history local in history there. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. Yeah, and, it's, I, and it's people look forward to it every month. Yeah, it, it, and I can't believe if we're a couple days late because, like, this month was a holiday, so it threw a distribution off a little bit. We started getting phone calls. Hey, people are in here looking for their nautical <laughs> mile. When are you bringing them? You know, I said, all right, I'll be there first thing in the morning. Yeah, you know? you're late. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think you have two publications, correct? So nautical mile you mentioned, and then you yeah, have a destination. Just recently, I realized there was minimal information left on Pine Island, and, and they're out here trying to recover. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of people go to Michelli's and Mount Lachey, and they kind of stop there. And they go back into town and they don't go further because they think, oh, it's just all broken and damaged. They don't realize everyone's open out here mm -hmm. and there's no construction out on the island. It's stopping traffic. I mean, everything's working and the restaurants are kind of like, where's everybody at? The, the drop in people this year is, is pretty intense this summer, more than it has been for years. And so I started this thing called Destination Pine Island and it's a quarterly versus monthly because okay. the, the information doesn't change often enough. And it, it was eight or 10 pages and it was just going to be kind of just a, a, a brochure type thing. But now it, it was, the first issue was 32 pages and I had so much more. I just had to stop because the press is saying, Hey, we need your files. We got to go. You know? yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so I had to send it in. So I just called it destination Pine Island and it's the utility companies. It's a map of every restaurant, whether or not they have a tiki bar or if they have breakfast or what they do. And I noticed there's two or three restaurants that I didn't have on it that are opening that just did, or they're opening soon. I think ragged ass is turning into marker three or something. And there's a lot of new activity out here. Mm -hmm. And so I just put it all together and it's, it's a list of where all the nature trails are and there's wildlife articles about what to expect on the island and the history of the island. It's 
the largest island on this coast of Florida, and, and it's mostly palm tree farms and you know, other land. It's not over polluted with condos. You don't see the water here, you know, because it's not that kind of an island. It's a very unique island. And and I just put this together, and now people are I'm seeing the online readership is getting higher than I had expected. It's a print version, but I do a, a digital version for people that are out of town, and the, the people are flipping through that. And and I noticed stands all over town are empty. I got to go refill them all. <laughs> the liquor store went through a couple of hundred the first two weeks, and I said, "But did someone steal them?" And she said, "No, everybody grabs one of those on their way." Up. That's great. Yeah, the chamber's been very supportive. We're doing a booth at Mango Mania, and something else that I do with that that hasn't happened yet, but but I've done it before with other things. When we're done with it, the re remainder doesn't get thrown away. I put them in a plastic bag and I'll go throw them in driveways in Cape Coral and North Cape just to make sure every one of them gets moved. It's That's 3, a great idea. Quarter. Yeah, it's, uh, I do it on recycle day. I find out what neighborhoods do recycles and mm -hmm. if there's a blue can in the driveway, someone's probably home, so they get one of these things. And you never know who's got visitors coming to town or who doesn't realize, oh, Pine Island's right there. Let's go out there one day and have lunch or something. And there's a lot of boating restaurants out here, too, you can bring a boat to and tie up. A lot of people look for things like that. This is a hidden island. I mean, yeah. um, I mean, having grown up in Cape Coral, it's not really applicable to you because obviously you you had some awareness, but... Actually, I didn't. I didn't come oh, really? out here until I, I got up when I was waxing boats. I got a call from Boquilia. Oh, okay. And I thought, I don't want to drive all the way out there. And when I was driving, I thought, this reminds me of the Keys. This is cool. So I bought a little trailer out here and ended up losing it in the recession. I paid for it, though. I didn't know you could give it back to the bank. So, oh, well, that didn't work out. But then I realized Boquilla is pretty cool, and it's not that far from town because there's no red lights and nothing to stop you. It's a quick drive. So I ended up buying a house out here. That was Boquilla. one of our questions. How did you find Pine Island? It sounds That, that was how I discovered it. The trailer I gave up and moved back to Cape Coral. That was a weekend fishing camp type of thing. But then when Robin and I met and decided we wanted to look at buying a house, we rented a house here off of Craigslist. By, by the marina beautiful big home six car garage i mean a wow. beautiful place and it was cheap rent the guy just wanted somebody in it rather than vacant so we rented that and realized yes we do want to live out here but how do you move out of a six car garage i mean now we got to start looking for property and he approached us and says i built 100 houses out here made a lot of money i'm done i don't want to rent i don't i want to collect cars and you know retire and so he just sold us the house dirt cheap just to get rid of it and i thought Wow. The only investment that ever really fell in my lap where I was at the right place at the right time. And that now, same thing, how do you move out of a six-car garage so we stay there? <laughs> yeah. It's always interesting, though, because, the you know, friends and family, we said, oh, we're moving to Pine Island or we live on Pine Island. And to a, where? Where is that? Right. Even some people that live in Florida, where is that? There's another Pine Island up by Cedar Key. Is there really? So sometimes okay. if you Google Pine Island, Florida, sometimes that one pops up. And they think, what are you doing out there? There's... It's empty. There's nothing there. No, that's the wrong island. It's well, the weird island. part for me is Pine Island, Minnesota will come up too. Oh, and that's yeah. where my father lived right. years and years ago. But yeah, that's, mm. and it's like, well, you know, do you know Fort Myers, Cape Coral area? Oh, yeah, we kind of, okay, well, it's an island off of that. Because I think yeah, they've heard of like, the, what are the vacation ones uh, uh, off of Sarasota and Bradenton, that area? Those are somewhat, uh, Siesta Key and that, those are yeah, quite right. well known nationally, probably from the vacation. Well, yeah, if you're national, you could say Tampa. We're a little south of Tampa. Yes. To me, anything north of Burnstore is up north, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you get to Burnstore Marina and cross the county line, you're up north. Yeah. <laughs> well, Burnstore Road is just an access to get you 75 should you need to go right. north. <laughs> yeah. Now, how'd you come up with the name Nautical Mile Magazine? You know, I, I, I was thinking of that. Just yesterday when I was thinking about coming here today and, and thinking of the history of the paper and, and remembering people I met and things I've done, it's been, a, it's been a great time. But the name was a dozen names on a piece of paper that you weed down to six and think, all right, these six have potential. And then you have a, the first press deadline, you got to send them something. <laughs> and actually the first publication was August 2003, I believe. And it was, it was before I actually got into it, uh, you know, the print size. This was just something I made. It was photocopies at Office Depot. And the first one was batched. I had to throw them away because one was side was upside down. I had to redo it because, you know, it's two sides per page. And yes, yes. I ended up folding them and creasing them and putting them under boards of wood with bricks on them to put a crease in them. And it was a hundred of those. And then I'd go out and pass them out. And one thing led to another. But it was called the Cape Coral Boater at the time. And then I thought, why don't I do the whole county? Reach for the stars, you know? Sure. So the name Nautical Mile was on the list with several others. And I just had to close my eyes and put my finger down and say, that's going to be the one and just go with it. Well, it's a great you name. Know, and I just, I had to come up with something. And I thought, ah, maybe you could use a slogan later, like we go the extra mile or something. Mm -hmm, Who knows where mm -hmm. we go. 
But, you know, when you see names like Google and Yahoo, most people don't know they actually represent something. They, they think kids just pull a name out of a hat. And once, once time enough time passes and you brand something, that just becomes a name. That's interesting is it not related to what you do per se, but the point you're making is years, years ago when haagen ice cream first came on spot, you know, we loved it. It was one of the first, at least that we interacted with, first premium ice cream, tasted really good. Long story short, FedEx, or excuse me, FedEx, what did I say FedEx? Haagen-Dazs doesn't mean anything. It oh, really? was like a made-up name. Oh, wow. Yeah, if you look in the back of the research of some of these countries huh. or something like that, you're like, I wonder what country that's from. What language is it in? Does that mean like I would think it's a German ice cream, cream yeah. really delicious, frozen yeah. treat? That it means something. It's just made up. Oh, wow. But once you brand the sound, it and becomes ever, a brand. Oh, I know. I was going to say FedEx. If you ever look at FedEx, and since you like details and looking into things, the way that logo was done, there's an arrow pointing to the right. Mm -hmm. If you look at once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that goes back to subliminal messaging. They see yeah. FedEx and with that arrow, you know, that implies or infers a delivery service. Right. That they Moving provide. forward. Moving and forward. Exactly. Amazon has the A to the Z. Yes, exactly. Uh -huh. The Amazon Prime logo. Yep. So, uh -huh. yeah, it's, there's, I think there's a book on logos, company logos, and why, they, why this is designed. And, and every one of them I looked at, I thought, well, I never saw that. Mm -hmm. I've never had a logo. I just, I have a name brand, so I never came up with a logo. Right. You don't need one. Yeah, it, people people remember the name. They've heard the name. Yeah, they know so it. Yeah. So with all these experiences, the publications, the Waxman, the whole thing like that, you've got to have some future ideas and don't share anything that somebody can steal from you, but mm -hmm. other things that are going around in your head that you're considering that you might do? I, I still want to put some focus into this class. Okay. That I that I was starting to write a curriculum for. I think it has some teeth. I think it could go somewhere. I'm just not sure where to take it or how to do that with it. Mm -hmm. I, when I look at society, I see the the need. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, there's a really deep need. I sat in on some Carnegie classes a few years ago, and and I paid the twenty five hundred bucks to go through the six weeks course, and and most of it was companies that were sending people that didn't really care to go, so they didn't get anything out of it. They didn't want to be there. Right. And and I realized that everything they were teaching is so gratefully needed in society with with communicating and, and understanding challenges. And it was a franchise, you know, so it was, they were kind of put through the motions, but I, I realized the information is so priceless and I'm, I'm seeing younger people, how they're so smart and so intelligent and so fast to be able to, you know, solve the world's problems, but there's so many holes that they didn't get. If you could fill those holes, they would be completely unstoppable. And, and the holes are, are more about social skills. You know, mm -hmm. when, I, when I talk to companies about marketing, I tell them it's not about how many people click your website. It's whether you've engaged with them emotionally to make them want what you have because people make emotional decisions. And younger people are not in, in connection with how do you get someone emotionally connected? That's the last thing they're doing. And that's not a negative. It's just not the world they grew up in. Well, right. and having interns and teaching them, I, I was just amazed that they didn't know how to work in business, in a business environment. Right. To write a business email, to run a meeting. Yeah, to communication skills. They, right. They didn't have grammar skills. I remember they had me on, on that uh, community college, mm. as, but I was a token advisory person. They oh. didn't want to hear, as it turned out. Well, they don't feel like input. they need that because they have computers right. and texting, but yeah, it, it comes with more than that. It's about communication. Right. You know, the old, the who's the, the, the marriage counselor that's gone down in history? There's a particular one. I can't think of the name. But it, it's about the communication of what you said isn't necessarily what they heard. Yes, correct. And 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 how how it how it was said makes a massive difference as to how someone receives it. And that, none of that's being taught. Right. You know, I mean, I think college is a great thing for anybody that wants to go. But at the same time, these things are not being taught. Customer right. service and, skills. Right. Never taught. Dealing with and, a client. Yeah. Getting off your phone and saying hi, welcome to the store. I mean, it's a big deal. You don't see it. You know, but it's how you feel when you walk through the door. So instantly you don't, and it goes back to saying people make emotional decisions. I feel like they didn't even notice me walking in and I'm the reason there's food on the table at their house. Right. At least say hi or acknowledge my right. existence in exactly. their store. But that's becoming so normal now that people don't think it's important to address it because that's how it is everywhere. And or are you, gonna you go thinking without you're going to do online or are you thinking you're going to have oh, a seminar I, If it's online, person? I probably wouldn't be interested because it wouldn't work. You've, you've got to be there to be physically engaged. And even with some sort of Zoom environment where well, you ha you can see all their faces? and I, You know, I, I don't know if that would work for what I want to do. Okay. If you're not physically engaged, I don't think you get that emotional connection and ability. Although I don't think you would have the option to do that. It would have to be on an online type of thing. But but some things, I mean, you can't do a haircut over the phone, you know? Oh, I mean, you, you've got to be, some surgery. things you have to be there physical, <laughs> yeah. you know, to, to make it happen. 
and I love writing. I, I started writing a detective type of series where this this guy is is it, nobody knows why he's lost and disturbed, but he keeps drifting into new towns and what he runs into, he ends up helping a family or something, and and then he disappears, and and everybody's like, well, who was that guy? But that was a whole two hour scene or something. And every time I watch a show like the Jesse Stone series or you know the uh, Jack Reachers or something, I keep thinking, no, it's sounding too much like that because those things are in my subconscious and it starts looking like that. So now I got to go back and rechange it all. And so then you lose direction. Well, Jesse was kind of dark though, wasn't it? It was dark, but it was a guy that was, you know, had drinking and marital issues, but he was in town, a good hearted guy trying to help people. Right. But I keep catching myself drifting into those other characters and I realize Mm -hmm. you can't copy someone, but I don't know how to get away from that. You mentioned um, redistributing the the leftover copies so that people are aware of it. So when the, the publication is new or fresh, uh, whereabouts do you drop it all off or is it dropped off for you, whichever it's, the system is, so people know where to pick those yeah, publications the, uh, up? The official launch date was the 1st of July, so it isn't in all the places yet. I, I actually put it out a month early just because we were ready. Okay. And and it was packed. But it's at the it's at the uh, the liquor store next to Winn-Dixie, okay. at, uh, Doc Watson's Doc Watson, Liquors. Yeah. It's, it's at maybe a dozen or 15 places out here on the island. It's at the chamber. Um, I've, I've done uh, a tented event just a few weeks ago that I was just kind of handing them out. Um, it's got a booth at Mango Mania for that. Mm-hmm. I've put a, a stand at the outside of the feed store, Pan Island Feed. Right out, Mike saw this. He says, hey, not only do I want you to put a stand there, I want the back cover on the next issue. So I was like, all right. You know, was, all right, Sounds like my arm, you know. He says, will you take pictures for me? And I said, absolutely. Mike's such a, such a cool guy. He right? is. He's yeah, very cool. Yeah, I could sit there and talk with him for hours about his life and his history. He's, he's just the coolest guy. So very, very quickly, the... Uh... We had ran in him at the Loki Tiki, mm-hmm. and he said, uh, where are you from? And I said, Wisconsin. He said, well, where in Wisconsin? I've just learned over the years, I, I don't want to answer that question, not because I want to be rude, but I know as soon as I give the answer, people are going to say, where's that? And then you go into this whole, here's the map of Wisconsin kind of thing, right? So I put it off in my kind Is of it near something big that you could use that instead? No, that's the problem. It's oh, okay. kind of middle of so no you can't place. say near Miami or something. Yeah. Okay. It, well, if you did, it'd be misleading because the big cities are like Madison, Milwaukee, and it's nowhere near there. Okay. Uh, but anyway, so... Because I don't know Wisconsin. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Mike politely keeps pushing, pushing, pushing. So I'm like, well, okay, this nice gentleman is... He keeps pushing. I'm going to give him the answer. So I said, River Falls. Well, he was born and raised in St. Paul, and his <laughs> grandparents owned a movie theater and a liquor store in River Falls, wow. Wisconsin, and he summered over there. So after all these years of being hesitate to say, so you just never know who right. you're going to meet and right. the experiences from. they have. But yeah, that's and down funny. here that happens a lot. Yeah. yeah, where someone knows exactly what you're talking about, because right. people here you're from everywhere. But I run into that quite a bit, where everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. I I've run into. I was in Missouri a couple of weeks ago. And I ran into someone that knew Bokelia. No kidding. Where are you really? from in Florida? Well, a little south of Tampa. Well, and it went on like you were just saying. Mm-hmm. It kept it going on. Well, and I just said, I'll shut him up. Yeah. Bokelia. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know Bokelia. Really? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I didn't shut him up. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of thinking that when I've done that over the years, their face always goes bad. Like, oops, I went too far with the question. Oh. And I actually had the bad reaction because Mike goes, well, I, I used to summer there. So, oh, wow. You just, yeah, yeah, to your point, it's really, really funny because uh, – that you just never, ever know. And I think you've been conditioned over the years. I know we lived in Chicago for a while, and people say, do you know Jeff Griffiths? I'm like, there's 8 million people. (laughs) The chance of me knowing that. Now, here, if you say, do you know somebody, it's a much higher percentage. It's a much smaller community. So that's too funny. Uh, Yeah, small world philosophy. Hmm. It really is. We could talk to you for days. I mean, well, this, yeah, this there's there's so... a lot of holes in this, but yeah, I think we we kind of covered the the, the, the stuff the, anybody would want to listen stuff, to anyway. But wow, it's just fascinating, and I and I hope you do end up figuring out how to teach because that's such a valuable thing to teach. It, it's what I want to do. I used yeah. to volunteer in Collier County in their business classes that they do the entrepreneur classes, and what they would do is come up with an idea, and the school year was spent building that idea into a business presentation. And it was a fictitious project. It didn't have to be real. They just wanted to come. Everybody wants an app, so they didn't let them do apps. They'd come up with something physical and real. Mm-hmm. And you'd work them through the concept of a business plan. And the school put them through the textbook business plan. And what I did with them was sat with the group. And I went in once a week for a couple hours. And I would sit with the group and take them to the, the out-of-the-box thinking type of thing. And reinventing the wheel and creating this. You know, even how you present it when you're done 
you know, at the at the end, how you present it can make or break if you're going to get anywhere or not. And if your product has any kind of validity in society, or if someone says, "Well, no, why would you do that? That won't work." Well, it's it's not about the product; it was about the process. But the product still had to have some kind of realism. Right. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. But I still have kids from those classes that send an email once in a while and say, "Hey, I got a job at this company," and it was because of something you taught me sure. in the class. You know, thank you. So the reward from that, I understand a kindergarten teacher or you know a high school teacher looking back. 30 years later and saying, you know, these kids benefited because something I did that I didn't even know about for 10 years. And there's a reward. I never understood the reward of a teacher and you never know who it's going to be. I've got this philosophy on golf balls, so how you never know who you're talking to or what's going on there. If you went to a, a driving range and hit a ball, a box of 50 balls and six of them happened to go, you know, over a hundred yards, you couldn't go collect those and pull them back and pick out those six. You never know what's going to, where something's going to go or who it's going to be or who you were talking to or what they heard or what they saw and where they want to take something. So that, that was what I got out of the schools is you're sitting at a table full of kids. And for all you know, the one that's not paying attention is the one that's going to be one of those golf balls that took off. So it was so rewarding working with younger people and thinking that something I said might actually help them. And it turns out it did a lot more than I thought. They remember you the rest of their life. It was so rewarding because the same as I do. I remember yeah. someone, you know, when I was a kid that helped me and taught me something and showed me something to them. It was just showing me a knot. But to me, it was someone helped me when I needed help. Right. So it's a whole different world when you're a teacher. Well, you'll probably see some of them on Shark Tank. Yeah. Before you know it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you never <laughs> you know, know. They'll take some your advice that. and yeah. they'll, they'll. And they come, come up through. with some wild idea and it's like, wow, who would have thought of that? Yeah. What a great thing. And hey, wait, I know that kid. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for talking to us. This thank you for so having me. This was great. I'm grateful you were on the island and you weren't. Oh, we're in Marco Island. You know, can you drive down? No. For the day? You were right here. We <laughs> want to make perfect. it easy. Yeah. All right. Thanks again. No, thank, thank you, you so much. We hope you enjoyed our Pine Island Experience podcast. If you have any ideas for us, people to interview, or any comments, please feel free to email them to us at pineislandexperience at gmail.com. That's pineislandexperience all one word at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us and you may subscribe to this podcast using all the major catchers like Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. And remember, island life is a constant vacation. We'll see you on the next podcast.